Hey, thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive review for me in iTunes. You can also check out my all-too-rarely-updated website at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. Let's start this week by connecting some of the dots between previous episodes. Ramesses II ruled Egypt during a period called the New Kingdom at the height of Egyptian power. In the centuries following the New Kingdom, Egypt found themselves under the thumb of other regional powers, including the Assyrians and the Persians, before being conquered by Alexander the Great in 332 BCE. After Alexander's death, his general Ptolemy was given control of the Egyptian portion of Alexander's empire, leading to three centuries of the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt, ruled by kings and queens of Greek descent, virtually all of whom were named Ptolemy or Cleopatra. There were like 15 Ptolemies and seven Cleopatras. In 80 BCE, a bastard son of Ptolemy IX was placed on the throne after Ptolemy XI was deposed. This bastard became Ptolemy XII, and he felt the best way to secure his throne was to have the backing of Rome. His deference to Rome, however, ended up alienating the Egyptian people, and he had to rely on Roman military backing and his ally Pompey the Great to maintain his throne at all. Ptolemy XII's will, of which the Romans were made executors, named his daughter Cleopatra and son Ptolemy XIII as co-regents. This is the Cleopatra of our story today, played by Elizabeth Taylor. Predating the Roman Republic was the Roman Kingdom, founded by the legendary Romulus. Also, according to Roman legend, Romulus and his brother Remus, both descended from Aeneas who fled the burning of Troy, were saved as abandoned infants by a wolf who nursed them. And another feature of Roman films you might notice is a statue of a female wolf, and this is why. The seven kings who ruled the Roman kingdom over its nearly 250-year existence are all considered legend due to a lack of written records. The Roman Republic is seen as beginning in 509 BCE with the overthrow of the last Roman king. The Republic was led by two consuls, each elected to one-year terms. The Senate of Rome began during the kingdom period, ruling between kings and helping to select the new king. And senators were not elected, but rather chosen by the consuls, and before that, by the kings. There were also tribunes, uh, representatives of the common people, both civilians and soldiers, who had the right to veto decisions of the Senate. And occasionally in Rome, they would appoint a dictator. But that didn't mean what it means to us today. They were granted a large amount of authority, but only for a limited time and limited purpose. It was a fairly common practice in the early Republic, but the entire 2nd century BCE passed without a single dictator being elected. Under the Republic, Rome grew from just the area around the city itself to the whole of Italy and controlled most of modern France, Spain, and Greece, as well as much of North Africa and Asia Minor. When looking back at history, the whys are sometimes hard to nail down. I think it's because all of the nuance of actually living at that moment in time is gone, and we're left looking at the milestones along the way. I mentioned this as I asked myself, why was Rome so special? What determined where and with whom they fought and conquered and made treaties? 
what determined which leaders they accepted and which they rejected. And then that leads to broader questions and what ifs. And we realize that the whole world has been directed by tiny events and decisions here and there over the centuries that had a butterfly effect on the present, even if we can't trace the source. I'm rambling, but I'm also trying to explain the lack of whys there will seem to be on our journey. Now, before 82 BCE, there had been 120 years since the last Roman dictator. Then at that time, there was a brief civil war that boiled down to the conflicting ambitions between Gaius Marius and Sulla. On two different occasions, while Sulla was leading armies in the east, Marius used his absence to increase his own political power and cut the legs out from under Sulla. And twice, Sulla marched on Rome itself, and this was a huge no-no. Both law and tradition forbid any military occupation of the city. Mostly, however, Sulla's actions were seen as justified, and he was elected dictator indefinitely. Sulla was mentioned in Spartacus when someone suggests to Crassus that he could bring his army into Rome, but Crassus refuses to even consider it. Sulla resigned the dictatorship and retired from politics, dying in 78 BCE, just five years before the revolt of Spartacus. Now, what does all this have to do with Cleopatra? Well, it, it may turn out to be one of our little whys. We talked last week about the triumvirate of Crassus, Caesar, and Pompey. Pompey had fought for Sulla and made his mark quelling unrest in Hispania. He returned to Italy to aid in the mopping up of the slave rebellion of Spartacus and was elected consul by a special decree as he was younger than the required age to serve. He was 35, he had to be 41. Julius Caesar was six years younger than Pompey. Family and marriage ties had put Caesar on the side of Marius in the earlier conflict with Sulla. So, though born into a patrician or noble family, Sulla stripped Caesar of all inheritance while he was dictator, and Caesar had to become a self-made man. He joined the army, and after the death of Sulla, he was able to steadily advance his military and political career, joining up with Crassus and Pompey, again, all unofficially, in 59 BCE. Caesar was elected as consul for the first time that year, and then Caesar spent eight years in Gaul, where he had massive massive success in wrenching Rome and himself, likely overreaching his authority. While he, while he was away, his alliance with Pompey shattered with the death of Crassus and the death of Caesar's daughter, who was married to Pompey. Their own ambitions and fear of each other put them directly at odds. The Senate and Pompey ordered Caesar to relinquish command and return to Rome. Caesar's hand was forced. He either had to return hat in hand and face potential prosecution or return with the might of his legion. This is Julius Caesar. He chose the latter, as Sulla had before him. Pompey fled Rome. Caesar left his pal and general Mark Antony in charge while he chased and defeated the various scattered forces of Pompey. The final fight was the Battle of Pharsalus in Greece. And this battle, I know you probably thought I forgot, is the opening scene of the 1963 film Cleopatra. Rex Harrison, the original Dr. Doolittle, plays Julius Caesar. And this film, for the most part, seems to hit all the right major milestones, so I plan to just recap it and point out the discrepancies as we go. As his men celebrate his triumph, Caesar isn't overly excited, as all they've done is defeated other Romans. They learn Pompey himself has escaped to Egypt, who is dealing with its own civil war, as both Ptolemy and Cleopatra want the throne to themselves. And the movie ignores the fact that even though they were brother and sister, they were also married, not that it was probably their choice, 
there was there was actually a fair amount of inbreeding in Ptolemaic Egypt. Now, while Cleopatra didn't have any children with her male relatives, she herself was extremely inbred. It's it's too complicated to even summarize with with words as far as you know whose mom was also their aunt and sister and all that. So I'll use I'll use numbers instead. In the absence of inbreeding, your parents, grandparents, great grandparents, and great great grandparents would be a total of thirty people. Two plus four plus eight plus sixteen, so thirty. For Cleopatra, this number was thirteen to eighteen people, depending on which account of her father's parentage is true. Now, though, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we're all a little inbred. Go back 30 generations from yourself, so somewhere maybe 600 to 1,000 years ago, the number of unique ancestors required in that first of 30 generations leading down to you would be 2 to the power of 30, which is over 1 billion. Again, 600 to 1,000 years ago. The world population didn't hit a billion until the turn of the 20th century, just over 100 years ago, which means a lot of your ancestors are repeated throughout your own family tree. You're welcome. Anyway, we arrive in Alexandria with Caesar, and we see its lighthouse in the distance, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Cleopatra is in exile while her young brother slash husband rules the city under the heavy thumb of his advisors. The actor playing Ptolemy was about 19, though the real king was probably only 13 at the time Caesar arrived in search of Pompey. The Egyptians have a present for Caesar. Pompey's severed head. He is not pleased as they had hoped. This is not how he wanted Pompey's demise to play out. It's, it's beneath both Pompey and Caesar. And then, just as recorded by the first century historian Plutarch, Cleopatra is smuggled in to meet with Caesar, rolled up in a giant carpet. And here the movie kind of speeds up reality, but it still gets it basically right. Caesar sides with Cleopatra. In fact, the two become lovers, and Rome defeats the forces of Ptolemy setting fire to the Library of Alexandria in the process. The library was famously destroyed in a fire, and there very likely was a fire set at this time that did significant damage, but the burning of the Library of Alexandria does not seem to have been a single event, rather a series of possible fires over decades and centuries. Ptolemy is banished from Alexandria by Caesar to his remaining armies, where he'll likely be killed when the Romans overrun them. And that's the last the movie shows of him, and he's historically recorded to have drowned in the Nile. The movie here also leaves out the fact that Cleopatra had other siblings. Her sister scored some military victories against Rome before being captured and exiled in Rome itself. And there was also a younger brother, Ptolemy XIV, who was named Cleopatra's co-ruler and, of course, husband, though he might have been maybe 12 at the time. He was probably around for another five years or so before dying, possibly poisoned by his sister. Though he would have been an odd character to have uh, included in the movie and tagging around with Cleopatra, her little husband brother in tow for half the movie. Truth is, stranger than fiction. Caesar and Cleopatra do have a son together whom they call Caesarian, and his full name makes him Ptolemy XV. Though Caesar acknowledged the boy, he did not name him as his heir in Rome. The Wikipedia article equivocates and only says Caesar probably fathered the boy. The HBO series Rome even makes a joke about this with their main character, the common soldier Titus Polo, as the father. In the movie, they have Caesar and Cleopatra married, but this is invention. They, though they do correctly acknowledge Caesar's wife Calpurnia back in Rome. 
A nice addition the movie makes here is having Caesar and Cleopatra visit the tomb of Alexander the Great. This also makes a nice continuing thread for us. Alexander idolized the mythical Achilles and carried a copy of the Iliad with him. Caesar idolized Alexander and, at least in the film, visits his tomb. And if it was accurate, I I stood at the site in the ruins of ancient Rome where Caesar's body was burned after his death. It's pretty awe-inspiring. There are fresh flowers still placed on the site to this day. The location of Alexander's tomb is actually a mystery to historians and archaeologists. He died, of course, in Babylon, but it seems in the debate over where to bury him, Ptolemy I took his remains to Egypt, and there are reports of Roman rulers, including Caesar, visiting him in Alexandria. We've just lost the knowledge of where the tomb is today, if it's intact at all. The movie plays up the idea that Cleopatra wanted to realize Alexander's vision of conquering the known world with Caesar by her side, but I couldn't find anything that said she was quite that ambitious. Caesar finally returns to Rome to enjoy his power. Before he arrives, we see the apprehensive Senate with Brutus, Cicero, and Octavian, among others. They are, they're nervous at the level of power Caesar is amassing. And again, the timeline is a little compressed here. What feels like days or weeks in the movie was months or years in reality. Though when Cleopatra visits Rome, her son Caesarion is now four or so. And she makes an entrance that Daenerys Targaryen would be proud of. A massive procession with everything but dragons, ending with her bowing before Caesar. The crowd now loves her as much as they love Caesar. And again, it's funny to think that in reality, her husband brother would have been with her too at the time. By the middle of March, yes, the Ides of March, in 44 BCE, a group of senators convinces themselves that Caesar has to be destroyed for the good of the, good of the Republic. It would be very interesting to see how the timeline would have played out had Caesar been allowed to live. As it is or was, their actions, directly or indirectly, led to the end of the Roman Republic. They distract Antony on his way to the Senate so they'll have Caesar alone without his strongest ally. In the film, we see the assassination of Julius Caesar through the eyes of Cleopatra, who's watching it unfold in a vision induced by a psychic medium. And historically, Cleopatra was still in Rome when Caesar was stabbed to death on the Senate floor. The rest of the movie is now about the relationship between Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Antony is played by Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor's two-time husband. They were married and divorced twice. Before she flees Rome in the wake of Caesar's death, they meet, and it's implied there is an unrequited attraction between the two of them, but now is obviously not the time. Over the next two years, the movie accurately says Antony and Octavian were united in hunting down and defeating the assassins. Along with another of Caesar's generals, Lepidus, they formed the second triumvirate. Unlike the first, this alliance was official and openly declared. Their final victory against Caesar's murderers came at the Battle of Philippi in Greece, but the following conflict between Antony and Octavian was inevitable. Their alliance had never been one of friendship, but of political necessity, and many in the Senate who had supported Caesar feared Antony would become a tyrant trying to rule in the vacuum left, uh, left behind by Caesar. They used Caesar's young nephew and heir, Octavian, as their rallying point. Octavian was just 18 at the time of his uncle's death, and he's played in the movie by Roddy McDowell, who you might know from the original Planet of the Apes series. In the film, Antony is hesitant to request the help of Cleopatra's vast resources in his fight against Octavian because he knows of his weak spot for her personally. They ultimately meet up, of course, and the movie paints their love as the cause of Antony's Antony's downfall, which does seem hard to argue against. 
it leaves out the three children they had together and also leaves out Cleopatra having Antony order the death of her sister. It also ignores the fact that Antony was married to a woman named Fulvia, called the most powerful woman in Rome by at least one ancient historian. She even launched her own military action against Octavian to further Antony's interests. Fulvia died of an unknown illness, and Antony and Octavian reached a treaty sealed by Antony's marriage to Octavian's sister, Octavia. This marriage is in the movie, and we see both Antony and Cleopatra not pleased by it. The movie also ignores the children of Antony and Octavia, who were the ancestors of future emperors Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. Again, even in a four-hour movie, reality is just too darn dense. Basically, in both the movie and reality, Octavian forces Lepidus into exile and is able to consolidate his power in Rome while turning everyone against Antony, who more and more seems to prefer Egypt to Rome. He really did just throw away any Roman ambition to be with and further the wants and desires of Cleopatra. In 32 BCE, so 12 years after Caesar's assassination, the Senate openly declares war against Cleopatra. The final battle was fought at sea in the Battle of Actium off the west coast of Greece. Antony and Cleopatra lose and retreat to Alexandria. The movie plays up even more the tragic element of their relationship here, having Antony abandoning his men in battle to follow the retreating Cleopatra, who had been told Antony was already dead. They then show a dejected Antony just moping around in Egypt, saying he is already dead and lamenting his love for Cleopatra, which has destroyed him. And in reality, it did take almost, almost a full year after the Battle of Actium before Octavian's force showed up in Alexandria. Cleopatra's son with Julius Caesar was ordered killed by Octavian. He would have been 17 at the time, and the movie makes him much younger, and we see the body of Caesarian just slumped in a cart as Octavian nonchalantly looks at the ring Cleopatra had given the boy. Antony and Cleopatra commit suicide before they can be captured, Cleopatra famously doing so via snake bite. The movie ends with the death of Cleopatra and an angry Octavian who had hoped to take her captive alive to Rome and make a spectacle of her. Cleopatra was the highest grossing movie at the box office in 1963, but it famously ran way over budget and remains the only highest grossing movie of any year to still wind up losing money. It was the most expensive movie ever made at the time and still ranks as the 23rd most expensive movie ever, even after adjusting for inflation. But to put that in context for its time, it's the only movie from before 1995, even in the top 50 most expensive movies ever, again, adjusted for inflation. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards, winning for cinematography, art and set decoration, costume design, and visual effects. But frankly, I I don't think it's that good of a movie. It does have a 7.0 on IMDb, but only a 56% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's pretty clunky and awkward, especially with dialogue. The editing is pretty poor in parts. And even Elizabeth Taylor herself wasn't a fan of the final product. There are plenty of other movies covering the various pieces in this film. Shakespeare himself wrote the plays Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra that each have their own film adaptations. Claudette Colbert played Cleopatra in a 1934 Cecil B. DeMille production. And one of my favorites is the HBO series Rome. A few other general notes from the events in the film. Caesar was very popular with the people of Rome. Yes, he was ambitious, but part of that was knowing the power of having the people behind you. He made many reforms, 
most significant perhaps for us was an update of the calendar very similar to the one we use today. The Julian calendar was used until it was updated slightly to the Gregorian calendar we use today under Pope Gregory XIII in the 16th century. And after Antony's victory over Brutus, we see him crowned with a laurel wreath. And this has long been a symbol of victory and honor. It gives us the term laureate, a winner of laurels, so to speak. And the phrase, don't rest on your laurels. That is, don't rely on your past accomplishments. And finally, while ending the movie with the deaths of Antony and Cleopatra makes perfect sense for a movie titled Cleopatra, for our purposes, we need to talk more about Octavian before moving on. Octavian, or Octavius, which is how I learned it, but the movie says Octavian, was the grandson of Julius Caesar's sister. He was not in Rome at the time of his great uncle's assassination. Caesar's son with Cleopatra was not recognized as legitimate under Roman law and was not mentioned in his will, while he had formally adopted Octavian as his son and heir. The demise of Mark Antony finally ended nearly 60 years of on and off civil war in Rome going back to Sulla, and Octavian was determined to keep the peace, but he did so by refusing to relinquish his wartime powers. Again, in real life, everything happens in gradual steps, but in 27 BCE, the Senate granted him the title of Augustus, and he had inherited Julius's name Caesar, as well as his great-uncle's deification. Julius had been formally declared a god after his death. So now, Octavian had become Augustus Caesar, the first emperor of the Roman Empire. The Republic was dead. Augustus would rule until his death in 14 CE at the age of 75. Roman territory grew, and Augustus built and reformed. Before his death, he said something to the effect of, I found Rome a city of clay, but I leave it a city of marble. He ushered in the era known as the Pax Romana, over 200 years of relative peace in Rome. Augustus's heir and successor was his stepson, Tiberius. During Tiberius's reign, in the Roman-controlled province of Judea, the legacy of a lowly carpenter was about to revolutionize the world. So join us next week as we tackle Martin Scorsese's controversial The Last Temptation of Christ. <laughs>